Hello, my name is Spencer Stewart, and welcome to another episode of Advancing Talent. I am so pleased to have a wonderful individual on this week's episode, Patrick Fagan. Patrick is the Chief Talent and Human Resources Officer at the New York Department of Education. Now, the New York Department of Education is uh, one of the largest school districts on planet Earth. Uh, the school district, I think, uh, Patrick, you can correct me if I'm wrong, it's commonly known as the New York City Public Schools. Yes. It has over, over, this is astonishing, over 1.1 million students in over 1,800 separate schools. The department covers all five boroughs of New York City and has an annual operating budget. Patrick, you'll have to correct me. I may be outdated, but $38 billion. It's a little less, like 32, 34. Okay, 32, 34. Still a sizable sizable, sizable, uh, operating budget. Uh, Patrick, as I understand it, you have been with the department for close to 20 years, working yourself up to increasingly higher levels of responsibility. Uh, Patrick, it's an absolute pleasure. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Spencer. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, Patrick, let's just jump into it. Mm -hmm. Uh, 20 years, the largest school district in the U.S. You are now the uh, chief talent human resources officer. 20 years ago, did you think you would be behind that desk right now? Absolutely not. I couldn't <laughs> fathom being in this role or position 20 years ago. This was not the career trajectory. I actually, actually it wasn't, I did not know I had a career in education because if we look at my background, I actually started out in finance and budgeting. I have an MBA um, and it's just so it just so happened that with because you mentioned that the Department of Education is so large, there's many opportunities in many different functional areas. And it just so happened that I didn't have to stay in just one particular area to hone certain skill sets and to move up the career ladder. Well, so for our listeners, uh, 20 years is not a small amount of time with any organization, but just walk us through um, how you ended up where you are today, your career trajectory. Uh, it, it sounds like, and I uh, saw this too, you have a, a business and finance background. I'm sure that has come in Um very valuably yes, it uh, does. for you, but just, just talk a little bit about your career path. Certainly. Um, so after grad, under, after completing my undergraduate back in, I'm going to date myself, but I'm okay with that. In 95, I was looking for jobs. And this is something that I notice many organizations do not have now private or um, public. I was looking like a gap year to do in like an internship or get into a management trainee program that would expose me to many facets of that organization before I actually chose a path of this is what I wanted to do. What do I mean? I 
was looking for jobs in organizations such as at the time, which is no longer around, I'm going to date myself again, like Chemical Bank, for those who now merge with Chase, they had programs where they looked for undergraduate employees and undergraduates to join their organization, but they would be doing cyclical rotations throughout various departments. And then after, let's say, nine months to a year, you would then get placed in a management. So it's like an office, like being, going into the armed services as an officer by going through ROTC. And I was looking for programs that sort of gave me that exposure and training. And I just so happened to come across a fellowship within city government. And it's called the New York City Urban Fellows Program, which is still around today, which I'm a proud um, alumnus of. And that was an, or another program that ran nine months to a year, which I applied for and got accepted, where they came in, there was a seminar component, they, which they had top leaders in government, commissioners, deputy mayors, come and speak to us once a week. And we were placed in city agencies, not as a civil servant, we took a test, but in a high level position, really being exposed to the intricacies and the inner workings of city government. And you got placed there for nine months. And usually after that nine month to a year um, came to expired, you was actually literally offered a position because they believe that your exposure and your training at such a high level and the job projects that you worked on, the skills that you honed, they wanted to keep you and they kept me and I'm here today, 20 years later. I love that story. It's something that I've heard frequently and that is individuals leaving undergrad or graduate work, getting placed in uh, an internship, sometimes directly related, sometimes adjacently related to what they studied. And through that experience, it just started a lifelong career yeah. with that organization. I think that's the power of uh, work-based learning, figuring out how to blend uh, what we learn in the classroom with the responsibilities and experiences that we, we have in the workplace. I think that's one of the more kind of powerful uh, arrangements to, uh, to, uh, to learning today. It's this working learning concept. Agreed. Okay, so Patrick, let's talk about you and the district. I think our viewers will be interested in understanding just the scale of the New York City Department of Education. So a few facts that you'll likely need to correct me on. Mm -hmm. As I understand it, uh, the New York City Public Schools is one of the most diverse, if not the most diverse uh, school district in the country. 40%, uh, roughly 40% of households um, uh, have uh, speak a different language at home than English. Um, where you have a wide uh, variety of, of uh, uh, ethnicities, races. I, I heard someone tell me that a third of New Yorkers uh, were not born in this country. Uh, and I, I would sense that as reflected in the demographics uh, of, the, of the public school system. 
Um, how do you, how do you, as the uh, chief talent and human resources officer, how do you um, navigate and leverage in a really positive way that diversity? That is the New York City uh, public schools. Great question, and thank you for that question, um, Spencer. So, just to add to that, and it's, I have this fact because I just worked on a document. We actually speak over a hundred and actually one hundred and eighty languages in our schools. Wow, um, and within the city, so that's that's a major that's challenge. But you do that. How do you did it? Do that. Um, you leverage the community supports and to be quite honest the principals the superintendents um which are for instance people are used to let's say a superintendent being the end all be the beauty about new york city and the diversity is we get to leverage the community and the superintendents are pretty much over the community um school and so they with the principals actually get to understand for instance if we need a paraprofessional that wants to essentially reset the policy and the guidelines for what criteria a paraprofessional could be hired or what they need to meet but locally the school and the principal and whatever the leadership team is comprised of would do the vetting of the candidate, for instance, because if I speak, for say, if I come from India or Bengali, speak a different language like Haitian Creole, that individual to help that power that would come in to help, let's say, a student, um, would more than likely come from that community. So we allow, not even allow, but it's set up in a way that the community uses those who are close to the issue, the challenge, or in this case, that language barrier, we allow them to actually vet that person as long as they meet, of course, all the guidelines and policy and they get to hire them. So part to answer your question, it's really using all available resources that's local at the community level before trying to make decisions at such a top down level. We allow those the foot soldiers, those who are closer to the issues, make those decisions and leverage those sort of um, points and access to the community at large. I get the sense, Patrick, that certainly in most school districts, but probably even more in, in your system, one of the big design tenets of how you're successful is community engagement, community yes. support. There's probably no other way of doing it. And so this prompts Another question, as uh, as the chief talent human resources officer, you have a really big say in what the culture of the system of the district looks like. Uh, many individuals in your role, whether that's corporate or nonprofit, uh, are either considered the architects of or the gatekeepers of organizational culture. And so how do you how do you navigate the maybe bottom bottoms up um, approach that is so necessary, engaging the community, 
with kind of a top-down guidance of culture and culture setting. Can you speak a little bit about your culture work uh, within the the system? Yeah, definitely. Um, so when I took this role, culture, culture, setting the culture of the organization so that it permeates out, as you mentioned, to such a large 1,800 facilities or schools. Um, and that's just not, I also have to be responsible for central offices. So that 1,800 does not include central offices or satellite offices that's out there. It, it, it comes really from the chancellor and the mayor. So the leadership, I have the mantra of the mayor who then the chancellor meets with his leadership team and he gives us his four pillars and what he needs to accomplish. Yeah. And it's up to my, me and my leadership team now to use the systems and structures that we have in place and all the tools and access to the various touch points and the visions to ensure alignment of messaging. Because to your point, how do you from the top down control what the bottom up, especially miles away? Because I always, I've learned in a system this large, you can set policy, but you can't control what happens X amount of miles away from the headquarters when that door is closed or when those individuals aren't with so you have to make sure that this system there's a constant system of feedback we do it through town halls we're constantly engaging the parents we're engaging the staff we're engaging the community through i although i know some people there's always the back and forth but as a doctoral candidate although it's self-reported data a lot of times it's important that we when i say we me as a department leaders of the department are making sure that we have our ears to the street. So it's not me coming into this office and sitting on an ivory tower and just sending out emails. It's making sure I'm out there visiting schools, talking to teachers, talking to principals, talking to superintendents, talking to parents. When the chancellor wants us at town hall meetings, when the mayor wants us there, we need to make ourselves available to the community. And by being a presence and not just a name, that's how you ensure the culture. When people and when people see me, they're like, oh wow, that is that is the chief talent officer. Yeah, I'm just like you. And matter of fact, I have people and this one thing I do do having my IO background, I'm not one caught up on positional positional power through titles. I'm an individual just like you. And what also helps me is that I'm homegrown from this system. I'm a K through 12 lifer. And so I understand. So that 20 years in the department, actually it's more. If you think I'm actually a customer of this product and I'm a product of this system and I come to work and I bring that with me, knowing that my cousins, my family, my neighbors, my extended family, this is the option they have. We all know, and although I may not be in the classroom, it reminds me of the story, and this is what I always tell my team, and I push this out there. When JFK went to Nassau, and he saw a janitor sweeping the um, facility, 
and he asked the janitor, what do you do here? And the custodian, custodian responded, I send people to the moon. That's the message I need all employees to understand. Whether you're sweeping a bowl, whether you're do whatever, you're a cafeteria worker, we're all here in service for the children of New York City. And that's how you do the culture, being present, um, taking calls, not being a bureaucrat and pushing and having somebody, being responsive when you hear and know that there's an issue, thinking out of the box because we're always faced as a government organization with limited resources. I mean, it's no secret. Um, it's national news. We're facing that immigrant crisis that we, we are not allowed to turn individuals away, but we have passion and we know that these children they came here for a reason we have to educate them we don't have that luxury of turning them away what is it so we, we work for instance with that the chancellor was brave and smart enough to talk to the union and come up with a plan where we have prince this is something which we're very proud of where we have teachers who are duly certified what does that mean they may be in one area but we were able so you get tenure under that license let's say in english when you get tenure, that's great. I can sit back, but they hold a secondary or even a tertiary license, let's say under bilingual or ESL. So how do we incentivize people to leave their safety net to now switch to another license area just to accommodate a situation that was thrown upon us that we had no control over? So we came up with new ways and creative ways. And one thing is we did the chancellor worked out with the union that any individual, if there's a need that wanted to change license area to support this population, we will incentivize them and that they could do that without losing their seniority and tenure, which is very important for our teachers that work very hard in their career to educate students. So that's sort of, I hope I didn't ramble, but that's yeah. like giving you an example of how we can control the culture from the top and from the bottom to sort of meet. It's just being present, being out there, answering the call of our of our constituents, which is our students and our families of New York City. Well, I, I love these two stories. One, your personal story of being homegrown, if you will, and then certainly the reference to JFK and how everyone needs to be aligned emotionally intellectually, culturally, uh, to the mission of the organization. Hence that custodian or janitor <clears throat> saying, I send people to the moon. I love that. And then with this recent example of teachers stepping up uh, in light of something that is outside of their control, uh, it sounds like you've created a great culture of problem solving. Um, I, I want to ask you, Patrick, all of us over the last few years learned some lessons, whether we wanted to or not, in light of the worldwide pandemic, COVID, uh, how we responded. This hit all industries particularly hard, yes. but certainly education. And so I want to ask you a question about the learnings, one learning perhaps, that you have taken with you from that pandemic experience that is helping you think differently 
about your work today. Does anything come to mind for you? Yes, empathy. 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 And why do I say empathy? You have to, and people in this role are my role. If, you, if you're a chief people's officer, chief talent, chief what, human resources. Over the years, what the pandemic has taught me, it, you have to bring the human back in human resources. Like, it was really scary. And not only that, but you have to be flexible, be ready to pivot. I remember we were literally one day, everyone was in the office, and come Monday, everyone had to be packed up, get a laptop, go and pivot to this remote setting. But I go back to the empathy because we were losing lives. Like, it's not something where it was a ghost. No, people were literally losing their life and you know people were feeling isolated the streets were like a ghost town i recall and you have and especially in education where we all know that the social emotional um well-being of not just the students of teachers were now we would think of it you're thrust into isolation for lack of a better term. you're now on house arrest you could you know and so you need to we need to although some people are like oh yeah i'm good i can work from home but at the same token what about those who need that connection or the social or those who aren't at a level of i don't want to use the word maturity but who could understand or take some people it works for where they could work in isolation but what about those who needed that interaction, that social interaction, who wanted to problem solve through teamwork, through actual physical teamwork sitting around a table. Learning, we had to be quick and empathize with those who really didn't have the, the, the myriad or various levels of technical expertise now to what's Microsoft Teams. I know word, but Teams or Zoom, like these were foreign um, concepts to individuals because you never had to do that. If I wanted something or I need to talk to someone, let me just run down the hallway or let me just, you know, pick up nobody. We were not using these technologies that we're using now today. And you had to be patient and empathize with those who didn't have that strong Wi-Fi connection, who, who was using an iPad or their phone to do work, you know? So you had to adjust. And so that's what this told me that nothing, we're very resilient. People are resilient, but you have to empathize with people. Like we may need this, this may need to happen, but we need to really think about that individual that we're asking something of. Yeah. And how does it, in, in, how do they fit? into a larger picture like it was so you have for me it was about the empathy and you have to be flexible because things changed and shifted and you just had to go with that i love that response empathy it's it's bringing back a lot of memories along the same lines let me pivot a little bit the field of human resources has changed dramatically um, 
it is becoming much more data-driven, although, Patrick, you said up front that we need to bring the human back in human resources, and I completely agree with that. But as I think about the scope of human resources, it's everything from sourcing talent to performance management to compensation to culture, and the list goes on and on and on. And your story of being a homegrown individual and you're not going to to like what I have to say uh, uh, but but you have you have because you're not one of these positional power people as, as you already indicated but you have risen high in the ranks homegrown how are you how are you finding or sourcing talent for such a large uh, school system. Uh, are you? Uh, what programs do you have in place? Uh, and are many of these programs local, or are you having to look outside of the city of New York? So we have like a just so that we understand sourcing talent for teachers or for the entire because you got for, for, yes entire That's good. yeah entire. yeah. So it's done like I said, teachers. We control that sense because it's regulated through the state. We have to ensure we do let's what's called a vetting process, ensuring that uh, candidates who want to become teachers are licensed, um, you know, and certified. But we also have homegrown programs. We have what's called alternative cert programs because there's no secret, for instance, that there's a national teacher shortage. So what I'm going through is what I have colleagues going through throughout this country. And that's something which we talk about on our collectively, and I'm part of, so, oh, let me back up now. In this role, it's important to have individuals that are in your role that you can bounce ideas off of to find out what's going on in other municipalities. Just because I'm New York City have the largest, I don't come from a lens, and many of us don't either, thinking that we know it all or that we're the best. Because we're in education, and I'm true to this as well, I believe that you have to always be a constant lifelong learner. It's not that I've got my credentials, I'm good, I've made it, leave me alone. So to your point, um, it's hard. It's definitely hard, but what you have to do is have systems once again in place and you hire the right people. So for me, I have a couple of executive directors who actually run those various, the myriad of employee relations. I have a teacher recruitment quality team. I have um, a benefits team. I have, <laughs> so you hire the right people and they do the right thing. And you get out of their way and you hold them accountable to what I call is a feedback cycle. And yes, to the point, that's where data comes into play because it will show if I have X amount of vacancies and they're out the window of them being vacant is X amount. That's a flag to me. What are we doing? Is the salary too low? Who are we competing against if this vacancy has been posted? have been posted for let's say two three months why can't we do we need to look at the job description who are we recruiting from are we just posting a line to your point are we going to find a solutions provided to help 
with the recruiting that has a proven track record of recruiting a certain demographic or need. Um, the talent pool, we got to constantly keep our ears working with the higher educational institutions we have partnerships with. So we have feeder um, institutions that we closely work with for some of our um, teacher pipeline and population, you know, those, those vacancies. For the specialty areas, I could share with you this. You're right. It's hard. For instance, attorneys. People, like, you don't realize, why would I, because the challenge, too, that we face that you didn't raise, which I will share with being in a big city, coming out of um, an undergrad or even a graduate school, what do people have? They have loans. They have bills. And now they want to start their life in New York City, where the rent is so high, where housing costs, where the cost of living. So we have to be able to compete with that. So these are all the metrics we got to think about. Are we compensating for it? Are we really considering what it would take to fill this position? And that's why I could say that's a shortage area for us, is finding attorneys to do this like contract work that we need done. Because if I'm coming out of Harvard, um, Harvard Law or you, I'm not coming to work for that amount. I'm going to, I want to drive whatever car. That's why I went to law school for. So <laughs> we're not finding those altruistic individuals. But we got to also, and that brings to the point, it sometimes isn't always about money. If you can connect with individuals, and this is where the data piece comes in, although we're not allowed to use tests, but because of my doctoral background, I'm a firm believer in these, predict, these um, psychological uh, tests that predict. Because if we know more motive about motivating individuals, well, keep individuals really motivated. Salary is one, one thing, but it's really the intrinsic value and connection to the mission and vision of the work. So it's important in the hiring. And that's where I spent a lot of time, spend a lot of time drilling down on is our hiring practices because you have various hiring managers that's that's sort of lack of better word in the field. So they're making the final decision on who they're bringing to the organization. We have to keep reminding them, and it's, this is where my job and the culture, this is where the policy comes down to, is look for individuals that's connected to the mission and, and that aligns with their value system. That's when you can find that match, you'll notice that individuals will complain about the things that other people will complain about or that they will find hard or challenging to the world because why they are intrinsically motivated to do the work because they really feel a connection to what we started out this conversation to say it is like educating children. I know I may could probably get 20, 30 grand more elsewhere, but you know what's more important to me is knowing that I'm giving back in a way that's going to help the community and society down the road. So it's, it's, it's a lot. I can't really pinpoint one thing, but that's one of the main things is trying to find individuals, especially when hiring. And that's the message that I push out that align culturally with their value system so that they don't feel they're doing something. It's not, in other words, it's not just a job. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Love that. It's apparent to me, Patrick, that you are a lifelong learner. You mentioned that you have a network of colleagues across the country that you connect and collaborate with. You're in your doctoral studies right now. Where do you go for inspiration 
Um, are you um, reading anything right now or listening to anyone right now that is particularly interesting uh, or relevant to you? Yes, it's funny. I just finished a book, Hidden oh, Potential by Adam Grant. Yeah. So I'm, I'm very, so Marty Siegelman, the father of positive psychology, for those who know, uh, yep. like, I, I just love the way they lay out work. And it starts even with Calvin Dweck with the mindsets. I look for individuals, that's another thing with that, with growth mindsets. And um, so the, the book I'm just finished with, Hidden Potential, and Adam Grant, he uses an example where he talks about sometimes people have a bad day. What does that mean? Someone may come into an interview and we may brush them off because of the way they may have looked or, may, or they may be nervous or for, for whatever reason it is. And why is that important? Because the hidden potential, because not knowing, we as managers have that latitude sometimes, many times to say, you know what? Let's stop this interview, come back another day. And the reason being, he uses an example where if there was this individual came in, said whatever, and sent them home and came back and this employee and ended up hiring this employee, and this employee ended up being the best employee that they and you would have missed out on that. So it's chewing into things of such so hidden potential by Adam Grant. That's all I don't want to okay. spoil it for anyone else. Sorry. That's what I'm reading. So I get my inspiration from you. I do read a lot of positive psychology books. Um I'm also strong in my faith. Um, you know, um big on my faith. Um that gives me my inspiration. And um, you know, and to your point, I I, I I love what I do. People ask me, what's your dream job? It just so happened to be I'm in my dream job because I'm, I'm getting my PhD in IO psychology. I'm the head of HR for the launch. Like, God is good. <laughs> That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Well, Patrick, I can't thank you enough for spending uh, a few minutes with us. I know our, our listeners, our viewers are going to be uh, very interested. And, and one last question for you. I suspect many of them may be interested in looking at career opportunities mm -hmm. with the New York City Public Schools. Where should they go to learn more? Oh, perfect. Oh, great question. They could go to www.schools. Dot, that's with an S. Dot NYC. Dot GOV, and you will you that will open up a door of many. Go to our website where it says careers. We have a career page, and I, you can reach me on LinkedIn if you really if you're that passionate. Um, I need teachers all the time. If you want to travel or come to New York, please trust me. <laughs> we'll take care of you. So no, they could find me on LinkedIn, um, Spencer, or they can go to the www.schools.nyc.gov and they'll find a careers page. Wonderful. Thanks so much, Patrick. Thank you for being such a valued guest on our show. Thank you, Have Spencer. a wonderful day. You too. Take care.